Hello and welcome to Pursuit of Infinity. In this week's episode, we continue the philosophical inquiry from episode 40 with a slew of new fun and engaging questions from the lists we were exploring. We really enjoy doing these types of episodes, and if you guys do, or if you don't, let us know wherever you watch or listen in a review in the YouTube comment section. Our channel's tag is at Pursuit of Infinity, or on Instagram at Pursuit of Infinity Pod. Or you can visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash pursuit of infinity and get into contact with us there. All of these things and more can be found at pursuitofinfinity.com, which is our newly published home. So head over there and see what we've got. And without further delay, thank you so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this week's discussion. back this week with the continuation of our 225 philosophical questions. Now, whether or not we're going to keep coming back to this exact test and continuing until we finish all 225 remains to be seen. But for now, we'll see where it goes. Uh, We left off last time at number 14. Uh, Number 14 is what is the meaning of life? Joe, do you have any thoughts? Yeah, well, my initial thought is, is this, the the question I want to pick apart a little bit, is it asking if there's like, if there's an absolute meaning that exists for all of us, or is it kind of referring to a relative meaning that, you know, is different for each of us? So the question actually is, is there a meaning to life, not what is the meaning to life? So if that makes it any more clear, I think that that, that can probably help, right? Is there a meaning to life? Main, meaning like a singular meaning, right? So I think for me, I'm interpreting this question as like a universal meaning because it says, is there a meaning to life? Um, so... Well, I mean, we can explore it either way. So why don't we explore the question as a universal meaning that applies to everyone? And then maybe we can explore a little bit of like what our personal meaning of life means. Okay. Well, I think either way, there's a a meaning to life. Um, But see, for me, this is a hard question because it just brings up, up so many questions, like where does meaning come from? So... Is there a meaning that exists outside of ourselves? I would say probably not. Something that exists for us and in us, I'd say yes. And whether it's the same for all of us, it's kind of hard to say because it's clear that everybody finds meaning in different ways. But if I have to say an absolute meaning, the meaning of this would be basically... uh self-exploration um to learn and to basically explore reality itself because when you think about what this is that we're doing here we are the universe and the universe has found a way to investigate itself because a lot of people like to say that you know, or they, they have the the thought process. I used to think this way just naturally that 
that I am in the universe, that I'm separate from it, like that, okay, the universe is a place and I am in it and I'm exploring the place. Whereas now I, I think more of that I am the universe. I am an, uh, just a piece of the universe that has developed the ability to look at itself. So that's like kind of feels like the function of humanity is, you know, it's a conscious agent of the universe. It's a piece of the universe that can look into itself and investigate and explore its consciousness. So you can kind of branch that off into everybody's relative uh, meaning as a human being. But I think the absolute meaning, and this is kind of like a Gnostic thing, it's a little different because the Gnostics thought that this material realm was kind of evil and that your goal is to transcend it. I think that I don't consider the physical realm, this reality, to be evil or something that is needed to be transcended. But I think the a meaning for life is to transcend this physical finite form that we're in. And I think that you can do that as a human being. We are gifted with consciousness to do that. But I also think that in some sense, that's going to happen regardless when you die. So do you think that this applies to all life that exists on the planet? or Because you did say that it's possible for a human to have this type of a meaning to transcend uh, their physical reality. But do you feel that this same idea can apply to all living things? I think so, yeah. Um, the, I, think cause it, I think that it's basically that there's one consciousness that we all share. So we can all experience ourselves. Well, we are all experiencing ourselves. Like, I am you. I, the thing that's lighting up your eyes inside of you is me. You know, it's the same. We're both the same thing. But um, we as human beings have a, a capacity to be aware of that and then transcend this state. I don't think that any animal can just, you know, transcend reality. But I think it's still the same meaning to explore itself, to survive and Big, the biggest thing would be, I think, uh, the love aspect of reality. I think the reality is driven by love. I think the universe is like driven by love as the fundamental force. I think we might have talked about that in the last episode a little bit. But I think the foundation of reality is love. And even the animals are acting through love just to even stay alive. The basic survival needs are still propelled by love. If At the very least, they love life. They love to live. So... They're propelled to stay alive and survive. So the the meaning is is the same for us, basically, too, uh, when it comes to the love aspect. But they also explore their reality. Um, it's interesting, like, all animals have curiosity, too. It's like a universal thing within, like, animals or mammals, reptiles. These All these beings, for some reason, have this thing instilled in them called curiosity. So we all, you know, you watch an animal snoop around, see what it's doing. It's always exploring. Um, I think it's a little different with humans because we can explore within ourselves a little deeper in order to transcend and, you know, experience different realities or different, uh, different states of consciousness altogether. But the thing is, we don't know if animals can do that either. Like I look at my cat sometimes sitting there calm as can be, and just eyes closed, like, what is he seeing? You know what I mean? Maybe he's in a deep meditative state and in a different type of consciousness. You know, I, we have no way 
to understand really what type of consciousness animals are feeling at different times or what they're doing or whether or not they see anything quite like we do. So it's hard to say, but I would say that the that there is the meaning of love and self-exploration. So when I think of this question, I can break it down into like two kind of parts, you know, let's break the unity down into a duality in order to understand it. And I'm going to start with the biological aspect and then sort of go toward like the more spiritual part of it. Cause I think it works its way toward of sort of into like, like what you were just saying. And it, it covers the rest of life on the planet. Because if you look at just biology in general, biology, or maybe you start with what is life? What do you consider life? Is there a meaning to biological life as we define it scientifically? And the way I see it is the meaning of biological life is to survive, to live, essentially. You know, the meaning of life is to live. I'm sure you've probably heard people say that in the past. And I think when it comes to any type of biology, any kind of life, there is some sort of drive to evolve, to survive, and to continue to progress. And it weaves its way through life with curiosity, as you said. Every being see, seems to have a curiosity to it. And I think that what that curiosity does, the function of it is to essentially induce the evolution of consciousness. Because if 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 evolution means anything, it means the evolution of consciousness. I mean, it's what propelled us to our current position atop, you know, the intellectual food chain, so to speak, you know, our our higher level of consciousness. So as a being grows, evolves as a species, I think then you can sort of transition into the meaning of life becoming deeper because as you evolve your consciousness, your ability to transcend it and to move to the next level increases. So to me, that's where you start to fall into the metaphysics and the spiritual nature of what it means to be an evolving biological entity with some sort of something driving you being consciousness. And I think what drives us, or I could say what is the motivating force behind our consciousness is that love you were, you were speaking of, the capital L love, God, or whatever you want to call it. Um, to me, I think love is a better word, a more accurate word for God than God. Um, and I think that thing, whatever that is, that all, that all of us carry a piece of, is the the driving force of evolution and it's the driving force of of you know growing and evolving your consciousness so if there is any kind of meaning to life i think it sort of takes that trajectory yeah i agree with the um i wasn't even thinking biologically at all but i totally agree with what you said there it's um biologically it's you know to reproduce to and see all these things i think the main thing because I was thinking back to what I said also, the main universal universal uh, meaning would be love, I think. I think even more so than uh, self-exploration. I think that's even like a, a, a one lower on the rung. You know, it's a little, I think it's maybe my bias, I don't know, but I still see it universally in a sense. Um, but I think love is the uh, the universal meaning. And like you said, capital L love, not um, this, not a romantic human emotion, 
but the fundamental driving force of existence. Yeah, because when you start to ask yourself, like, if the meaning of, of life is to uh, transcend yourself, or if the meaning of life is to, like, biologically survive, so then, okay, what happens after you transcend yourself? Then what? What happens after you biologically evolve? Like, then what? And to me, at the base foundation of all of it is that capital L love, because you can't really go any deeper than that. Well, I think that's a, a good point that you made. Um because I think the, the transcendence that I'm referring to is infinite. It's not a destination. It's a process that's never ending. And the same goes for this love or God. I'm going to go with love. Love is infinite and there's ever deeper levels and all the way to the foundation. When you think you've hit it, it's infinitely larger. So I think that's another good way to look at it as for a meaning because there's no end to the meaning. It's, you know, it's an infinite eternal process. and and it's the the transcendence. I know it might have sounded like I was talking about like the Gnostics kind of put it as just getting out of this place to somewhere else. But I'm thinking of it more as just almost back to the biological, like an evolution of consciousness. So your consciousness can forever, you could become aware in forever in the infinite, like up, you could go up and higher awareness, or you can go low to lower awareness, like infinitely in each direction. So the meaning is, I also, like you said, the meaning is to live. And that's, that's quite the simplest way to put it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So if I were to ask you not to harp on this question too much, because I'd like to have an episode dedicated to this question completely. But if you were to lower it down to a human level to the to human consciousness, and what it means to be a human, what or is there a meaning of life that is universal for all humans? I would say almost no, um, because every human is so different. My answer is going to be completely different than 99.9% .9 of people. But in my bias answer, it would be to become more godlike, which would be for us, us as humanity to become more selfless and to become more loving and uh, more compassionate, all these different things while exploring ourselves and transcending the higher states of consciousness. I think that's the move in a direction that leads to prosperity rather than, you know, just purely focused on technology and weapons and war, all that type of stuff, uh, money, you know, material goods. So a lot of those things that you mentioned, like the, the human part of, you know, cultivating love and cultivating compassion, those things inherently are going to aid you in your quest of the evolution of consciousness. So it's almost like the question of what is the human meaning of life and what is like the meaning of all life is like, to me, it's kind of the same thing. I agree. And um, it's like during right now, what humans are doing, we're so focused on um you know, advancing our, ourselves in a specific way with technology and, you know, material goods and just trying to create as much as possible. And I like to look back to ancients and ancient humanity and see how they were different from us. And it is said that ancient cultures, you know, you could look back, it doesn't seem like they had the type of material goods and innovations that we have but they looked at themselves, the human body, the human mind as the technology. 
So I think a little bit, if we looked back to that a little bit and used ourselves in our minds more instead of being pushed so far outside of ourselves, which seems to be like an active thing that's happening with all the technology, we're being drawn away from silence and, you know, looking within and all that. I think the meaning lies somewhere in there. I mean, I, I would say there's a, it's a combination of both, but um, I think the, the meaning, the loving meaning, compassionate meaning, that has to, it has to come from within us, which it seems like we're kind of moving outside of that more. All right, number 15. Is having a big ego a negative or positive trait? To me, it's a very negative trait just because of the way that, you know, we kind of think and the way that we go about living our lives. But, I mean, for some people, I could definitely see it being a positive trait. And the way I like to look at this type of question is situationally because there are certain things in this life that we enjoy that could not be if there weren't somebody that had a huge gigantic ego that wanted to create this system that created what we're enjoying so there is a place for people with very large egos i don't think that a world with people that are completely egoless monks or something like that would be a, a good world to live in because you have to have balance. So personally for me, I I would say that having a big ego is a, is a giant detriment to the way that I live my life. But I am still happy that there are people out there that have giant egos that are working tirelessly to provide me with the things that I enjoy in my life. Yeah, I agree with what you said. I think it all depends on you know, your goals, what the person's goal is in life. It depends on that, whether it's negative or positive. I think broadly it's negative because when people are just too ego driven, they tend not to care as much about others or be as compassionate as they could be. I think it's important to use the ego properly the problem isn't like the ego or how big it is, really. It's often just the identification with the ego. Um, then you you see everybody as separate than yourself, and you just get too stuck in you know in yourself. So I think the ego is mostly negative if it's it's a for your average person if they just have a huge ego. Um, but in certain circumstances, you want someone with a big ego. Like if you're in if you're competing, then a big ego is can be good, can be bad though if it's too big. And, you know, you underestimate, you know, your competition. So I think it's a balance, you know, it, it it's not necessarily negative because as you said, it's important that we have that balance. And if everybody were the same, then it wouldn't, it wouldn't be good for any of us. We wouldn't have a lot of the things that, that we enjoy today. So I think the variety is good, but if everybody if I had to choose one, if everybody had massive egos or if everybody weren't so egotistical, I think it'd be better if people weren't as egotistical. I agree. And I look at a guy like uh, like Michael Jordan or something. That dude had the biggest ego of all time. And he was one of the highest exemplifications of you know, what the human capacity is capable of. So like you said, it's a, it's a healthy balance, I think. Yeah, and I think, you know, egos are necessary, like a, even big egos are necessary for all competition. 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's how we get innovation, how we get entertainment, you know, sports, just healthy competition amongst friends. If you don't, if you're so uh, egoless that you don't care about winning and you see your opponent winning as yourself winning, then you can, you don't have to push yourself to, you know, fulfill that ego and get the win for quote unquote yourself. So I think it's key for competition, at least. You ever hear the quote, the ego is a wonderful servant, but a terrible master. Yeah, it's a perfect quote. That's exactly it. All right. Number 16. Is there absolute mortality? Is there absolute mortality? Do you think that means that when you die, nothing happens? Is that what they're trying to say? I think that's what it's saying. And no, I, I don't think there's absolute mortality. I think that we are actually immortal. Um, obviously not how we see ourselves, not these uh, physical bodies that we're living in right now. But I think consciousness is infinite, eternal. The thing that you really are um, beyond the ego, I think that thing is immortal. So I don't think that uh, mortality is absolute. I agree. Because my definition of life and mortality is not like the end. I don't think it's that this biological entity losing its, you know, electrical signals means that, you know, consciousness is is gone. Um, because I don't believe that consciousness is generated by the brain. So yeah, I don't I definitely don't think so. And I've been doing a lot of research into near death experiences as of late. And dude, fucking wild, by the way. Um, and if you just do a little bit of research on near-death experiences, your whole view of reality and what happens before and after death will definitely change. I mean, I already had this idea in my head that that we live on, something lives on, some sort of consciousness or some sort of uh, something. I don't know what it is. It, it's hard to put into words what it is that could potentially move on, but I think that there's something that does continue. Um, and if you just look at like some of the Buddhist traditions of reincarnation and rebirth, you know, the whole philosophy is that your, your soul is in this, like this constant cycle called samsara, where you're constantly being re reincarnated and rebirth into a new incarnation. Um, and then, you know, whatever you end up doing on this plane of existence sort of determines where you're going to go. If you're going to stay in a human incarnation in the next time, if you're going to ascend to a God realm or be lowered into like a, you know, the, the hungry ghost realm or an animal realm or something like that. And depending on what sect of Buddhism or what philosophy you're looking at, depends on what, you know, how you end up moving around these, these realms. Um, sometimes it's said that you don't really move between realms and it's like really difficult to ascend from like an animal, or like an animal consciousness to a human consciousness or something like that. Um, but yeah, my, my answer then basically to that is, um, no, I don't think there is a, a such thing as absolute mortality. Yeah. I mean, absolute mortality, like, as you said, you don't think the, uh, the brain creates consciousness. So like mortality being absolute would be, you know, the common materialist view. And I think it's kind of amazing. Like, because we were brought up in a culture that is clearly materialist and, you know, we are just indoctrinated into the modern science that we have today. And so it's, for most people, unless they're religious, it seems kind of uh, obvious that, you know, that we are mortal. 
you know. But as soon as you step outside of that paradigm, it opens up infinite options of what could be. And like you mentioned, the near-death experiences, it's so crazy to go into that and like research that stuff. Um, Cause you have a lot of, of experiences that align. Like there's a lot of commonalities between people that have near death experiences. Some of them are like out of body experiences a lot. Um, like people when they astral project, um, other people have what is strikingly similar to a uh, DMT experience. It's very interesting. Um, I think that through the way we were raised, it seems almost obvious that um, we are mortal. But if you just step outside of the paradigm we've been raised with, it, it seems now for me, it seems obvious that we aren't mortal. That, you know, maybe our physical bodies and the personalities we have right now could be definitely mortal, but something lives on. Yeah, I think it's important to note that all it takes is one transcendent mystical type experience whether it be through a psychedelic or through a near-death experience and very often people's idea of their mortality and what happens after death changes dramatically so i don't think there's been a single person who has had a bunch of psychedelic experiences or a near-death experience and then has been convinced that when they die nothing happens but the opposite exists everywhere. Oh, yeah. And like you said, with psychedelic experiences, any transcendent experience, it's like you can be brought to that conclusion from a number of different like awakenings that you can have through psychedelics or any other type of method that you use to alter your consciousness. Like I had an experience where I was time wasn't a factor in this in this state of consciousness so just that alone gave me a whole different recontextualization of reality and what i think time is and you can exist in a place and i have where time is it's like all all time and no time at the same time you know so we're just so confined to this you know this realm that we're in now where we're driven by linear time and if you have an experience that just throws all out, all of that out the window then you're suddenly like, oh, okay, that's just, and that's just one awakening that you can have. And so there's, you know, I look at like consciousness and, and our ability to know it and know ourselves as like, you could look at it like a watermelon and each awakening is like putting one slice through it. And each of those slices can teach you that you are immortal, but you only caught it from one angle. So you can put you know, you can keep cutting that thing up millions of different ways if you have a small enough blade. So it's like, even if you have an awakening, awakening and you think like, oh, I get it. And then the next time you could have another one that is totally mind blowing and changes everything else. But a lot of it points to the same thing. So there's many different ways that you can come to the conclusion that you are actually immortal and you aren't the ego and things are far more magical than just what we've been told i want to put that quote on the shirt all time and no time at the same time that was awesome yeah, <laughs> yeah it's crazy all, all time and no time is really the same thing yeah and it's like when you feel that as as you said the paradigm shift that that alone can cause is earth shattering some people can't get over just that fact alone when they have that experience 
yeah, that really, that was uh, incredible for me. And um, it makes me realize that I exist, in a sense, outside of time. Just my consciousness right now is inhabiting time, you know, but it doesn't have to. Mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, that was big for me, too. Um, should we move on to the next one? Sure. All right, number 17. Is the most important purpose in life to find happiness? I mean, I guess that would depend on what you define happiness as. But I think that happiness does coincide with all of the things that promote, like, self-exploration, self-actualization. Like, in turn, that's just going to make you happy. But I don't think happiness is the goal of, of life because happiness is, a, is, a, is like a human emotion. And if you're going to try to to pin down a human emotion as the meaning of life, I think you're, you're going to be disappointed because when you start to really find yourself and, and do this like self-actualization path, you know, go down this path, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. You know, if you take a psychedelic or if you, again, have a near-death experience, it's not all happy. It's not all grand and great. But I think the end result, whether it be spiritual evolution whether it be the, the, the evolution of the relationships in your life, all of these things that we find important, I think they all end up resulting in happiness. So I, don't, I think happiness coincides with like, the deeper meanings of life. Yeah, I, uh, I was kind of just thinking the same thing. But another thought I had was, well, first off, I'll say, no, happiness isn't the most important purpose in life. And it made me think about you know, our culture today and, you know, all the sadness and depression and all this going on, it's because, I think partially it's because people feel this way, that happiness is the most important purpose that you can have. And counterintuitively, when you seek happiness, it doesn't work that way. You get, you get depressed. That's why people are constantly looking for that quick dopamine hit that doesn't actually work. So people are just, just all they want is happiness and comfort. And it ends up, you know, harming them and draining their happiness. Whereas happiness actually comes from when you do something counterintuitively again, it comes from when you do something that isn't making you happy and then you get through it. You know, it's like coming through the struggle. That's why a lot of psychedelic trips are transformative and just amazing because you went through something hard and on the other end was true happiness and a realization and insight and all of this. But if you live by the mindset that happiness is the most important thing and that's your purpose and you just, you know, go towards happiness, I think you see a lot of that today in our culture. And I think it results in, you know, the opposite effect. I think if you just are constantly pursuing happiness, you actually get sadness. Yeah, because there are many false prophets of happiness in our culture. There are promises that, um, you know, this thing will make you happy. This thing will make you beautiful, which will make you happy and, and all of that. And that's not what happiness really is. Happiness, it's deceptive because it can be uh, distinguished from comfort because we think that if we're comfortable, then we're obviously going to be happy. But no, because comfort is very deep as well. Are you physically comfortable? Are you mentally comfortable within your position in the world? You know, and what does that mean? How does that coincide with what happiness or joy is? So. 
happiness, it's squirrely. You know, you can think you're happy or you can go toward a goal of something that you think is going to make you happy. Like say, you know, all I really want is to get a new BMW or something. You know, I want a nice car and a big house. So I get the promotion and I get all the money and I get the, the job and the car and the house and all that stuff. And then a lot of times what you realize is that this actually isn't making me happy. It's just giving me the simulation of happiness via dopamine rushes from hopping in my car and starting it up. Because sure, it's fun to drive a nice fast car and it's like really cool to like look at your ginormous house and like not have financial problems. Like that's, that's phenomenal. It's great. But that's not where true happiness lies. Uh, true happiness, in my opinion, again, coincides with the more like deep, important aspects of living life. And, you know, like you say, you get that car and it makes you happy at first, but as soon as you become comfortable with it, you know, you lose that happiness. Now it's just a normal thing and it doesn't mean anything to you. You're used to it. It's like the new experience that brings the happiness or the struggle to get it. And then when you have it for that moment, the happiness is real. I also was thinking of like a drug addict, you know, a drug addict wants to get their drug of choice. And the moment it's in their hand, that's happiness for them. So they spend their whole time searching for that happiness. Then they use the drug and immediately they're like, yes, happy. But these quick hits of happiness lead to just dread and sadness. So if you pursue something that you think brings you happiness, and it does momentarily, I notice a lot of the times it actually leads to sadness and depression. It's, I think it's more about um, playing the long game. And in today's society, we are just so forced, like quick hits of happiness and just dopamine rushes that in the moment they feel good, but very shortly after they happen, it actually brings you to a lower low. And I think that th that's just what first came up in my mind when you were talking was about, it sounds kind of like what a drug addict experiences. And a lot of times when you get those dopamine rushes, those quick hits, it doesn't just result in like unhappiness, but it often results in a massive crash. And if you, um, if you're always seeking happiness, a lot of times you destroy things in your path too. And, you know, you might hurt other people. I've noticed, you know, it's happiness isn't, I think it's just, as you were saying, it's an end result that is that, you know, makes you happy, but it's not the purpose or the goal or something to even focus on. I think the, you know, think about it less and just happiness comes. You know, it's a human emotion. Mm -hmm. Number 18, do we have free will? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> do we have free will? Um, I'm going to say yes, we have free will. Um, but I think the actual answer is yes and no. Because as I was mentioning earlier, about time, how it doesn't exist in the way that, you know, we're experiencing it right now. So let's just think of, try to think of if all time happens at once. So that means the future has already happened. So that means that everything we've done is in a sense determined. So if time is, if, if time is not linear, 
then there's no beginning or end. It all it all is happening, and it all has happened, or it all will happen. If that that doesn't really make too much sense, speaking it. So I think there's that aspect to it. I don't know if I can explain that too much better, but uh, just because time doesn't exist in the way it feels as it does right now, it doesn't exist that way absolutely. There's an aspect to reality that seems like everything is already determined. But at the same time, this is why I lean further towards just saying yes, that free will exists as the answer, is because we we live as if we have free will. In the experience right now, I have free will. I'm doing, um, I make the decisions and, you know, things happen. I, it, it's, it's purely the way that, that we live. No, anybody who says that you don't have free will exists as if they do, you know, if, or else you just sit there and do nothing and not care. So I think that we absolutely have free will, but in the same sense, everything is also already determined. But in this moment, free will exists. Yeah, I think you can look at it in like an absolute sense. We don't have free will, but in a relative sense, we do. Um, I've heard an argument, I think Sam Harris brought this up, because Sam Harris is a guy that says we don't have free will. Um, and he, he likes to use uh, you know, the argument of like, so if I decide to pick up this glass and drink it, this glass of water, Am I picking that up because I'm deciding to drink it or am I picking it up because the biological signals in my brain are telling me that I'm thirsty and I have to pick this up and drink it in order to survive? So it really depends on how you look at it, but I do agree with you. I think it's it's definitely both. It just depends on if you're looking at it from like an absolute sense where you're going to talk about time and you know if time is is relative or if time is uh is not relative actually, then in that sense like you said, everything is happening here and now, and the past has been written. And if the past has been written, and this moment is all that exists, then the future doesn't exist, but it does exist because it's now, and the past is already written. So it's like, it's a really, really weird question to tr to try to wrap your mind around, but I think I agree with you. Yeah, the, the time thing is just, it's really weird to explain. It's um, but I agree with what you said too, but I, what I do, I guess, disagree with would be that I think absolutely it's still both in a sense. I think absolutely we do have free will too, because from the Godhead, everything is willed into existence. It is the Godhead's will. So absolutely, I think that the free will exists. So basically God has free will and we are god so we have free will you know what I, mean? I see what you're saying so it's yes. not written for god he's willing it he's like what is happening is actually the will of god and so from that godhead his will is actually all there is it's will whatever you like to say so it's almost like saying if i'm god as a result of my free will i freely choose to instill you with free will or you could even say it the opposite way. As God, as a result of my free will, you don't have free will because it's my free will. But at the same time, again, my free will is your free will because you are me and I am you. And yeah, so absolute paradox. There is no answer to this question.
Yeah, I've, that that was exactly it, I think. I think it is 100% a paradox. And I think there's a good argument to be made for each one. And I find with a lot of things, it is actually both. Um, but I always say that we have free will. I think it uh, brings about a better attitude and a more right brain type of way of thinking rather than you know looking at everything is so analytical. The determinism is usually pretty dreary and it, it i've noticed people who support that um often are wrong about a lot of other things um in my opinion so i think yes we do have free will but in some weird way we don't but it, it, what i always boil it down to is in this moment my experience is free will like i don't care any concepts you throw at me or any any type of explanation or academic twisting of words or anything, if you just sit and experience what's happening in the moment, free will does exist. It's, a, it's what's happening. So it's quite simply, do you behave like you have free will? And the answer is yes, we all do. None of us behave like determinists, you know? You don't pick up the glass and, or the glass of water and drink it and and not do that with your free will in the moment. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, it's just it's like an intellectual game. But it's it's a good argument too. You know, and it does make some sense. Um but I go yes, but actually both. Yeah, I think yes, but actually both is a good answer. Okay, number 19. Does life require a purpose and a goal? Well, again, this is like if you define life as biology, then built into biology is a goal, the goal of evolving and surviving. If you want to talk about life as a human, then no, it doesn't require anything. Um, what happens with a stillborn child or a, you know, a, a two-year-old who gets hit by a car suddenly? There's, there's no inherent purpose that that child had to serve in order to, to live. So, I mean, you could find a purpose, but I don't think that is, it, it's a requirement. The word requirement in this question uh, just kind of turns me off to saying yes to it because it's almost like, I think we had a question very similar the last time where it was so, something like, I don't know. I, I forget what the question was, but it was very, very similar to this. And it basically was saying, like, is there like an absolute, like, do you must you have a purpose in order to live type of thing? It was probably like a should question. Yeah, it might have been yeah. a should question. Um, and I don't think there is a type of absolute should in terms of like our lives and the way that we live them. I'd say initially I thought, uh, no that life doesn't require a purpose and a goal. And I think this could be another one where it might be both a bit. I mean, you know, it depends on the perspective clearly, but is purpose and our goals inherent to reality? Like you mentioned the, the stillborn. See, I, I was imagining what maybe a religious person would say to that. And I, you could argue that the stillborn's life had a purpose to affect the mother or something, you know. But did not require a purpose to come into the world. You know what I mean? That, like, that's where my, 
my whole problem with it is required. Like, does life require a purpose? Well, that's what I mean if it's inherent to, I mean, I, I guess it's just how, it's hard to say, I would guess absolutely no, but it takes a perceiver to like assign a purpose and a goal. I think that basically everything has a purpose, I guess you could say. Um, and the goal is just the end result. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. You know what? That's a good point because purpose and goal are not the same thing. So I would say yes. You know what I mean? We do inherently have every living thing inherently has purpose. Again, because back to the biological part of it, we have to inherent in life is evolution and survival and all that stuff. But goals, I think goals might be a result of higher levels of consciousness because like does a do do but every every form of life has a goal too and their goal it coincides with their purpose these questions are just they're all paradoxes man yeah because like if you think of it like i was kind of saying before with the stillborn from god's perspective it was required the purpose of that stillborn was required to teach the goal to the mother you know like if, for instance if you people are say like oh you know my uh my mom got cancer and she died and it was horrible and god doesn't exist because of that but they could like i think of this more especially from a christian perspective and they have some validity to this argument that even the bad things that happen is is the purpose of that is to teach you something and lead you somewhere and you know you're exactly where you're supposed to be so you could say at the end of the day that almost everything is God's goal, you know, God's goal. So in the absolute sense, the purpose, you know, any end result is, is a goal. So inherent in any action is a purpose or a goal. And if because there is something rather than nothing, inherent in every something is a goal or a purpose. Yeah. So I guess it still boils down to exactly what you just said, the word requirement. If it's, and, and I don't know if I like that word either, but I think that purpose and goal is inherent to reality. I like that. Yeah. Number 20, would you kill 10 people to save 100? Uh, who are the people? <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a tough one. I mean, I, I, my mind wants to go right to like, how old are the people like, and start trying to justify some type of moral reasoning to what I would do. But I'm pretty sure it's just speaking very generally. And, um, okay. Would I kill 10 people to save a hundred? I don't know. My, my gut goes with no, but I think that, you know, I probably should. I'm thinking in, in the reality of it all, I mean, is it just that I push a button and it happens? You think, is that like the way to think about this? Does that really matter? Because regardless, if you're responsible for 10 people dying, you're still killing them. Yeah, so, but if I, I, it'd be a lot easier to push a button than physically kill these people. Yeah, well, let's say 
in your ideal version of this question that works out in the best way for you? Well, like they're I'll, all rapists and all you got to do is press a button and they're all gone. Oh, if that's and yeah, you save a hundred children. Sure. That then definitely that's, that's definitely it. If I just have to push a button, but I, I'm, I'm thinking the question is supposed to be neutral in all those aspects. You can answer it in either way. For me, my, my answer doesn't, doesn't change regardless of whether it's, you know, Oh, you go ahead. I would say absolutely no for a few reasons. And this is kind of, I have this discussion sometimes with, with some people in my life about the death penalty. I don't believe in the death penalty because I don't care what a person has done. I don't believe that another human has the right or the authority to decide whether another human lives or dies. And as, so if you extrapolate that idea, I don't, I don't feel like I would kill anyone for any reason. Even if like some guy came in here. So, okay. The only reason, the only way I'd kill someone is if I was actively defending myself or my family. That's the only way. If somebody came in and they killed you and they killed mom and they killed a bunch, you know, whatever. And then like the following day I got the opportunity to kill them. I would not do it. There's nothing on this earth that I think would get me to actively kill a person based in like a decision that was made preemptively. Well, this is about saving people too, though. So you could, let's, um, we can even dumb it down a little bit and make it more realistic. Like, um, let's do save 10 people and kill one. So if you went, walked into a room and there was a man in there in the process of killing 10 people and you had to kill him to save these people, you wouldn't kill that, that murderer. I don't think I, I would. would definitely do it then if the guy is killing people, but innocent people, that's a whole different story. I would say if they're innocent, I, my gut was saying no. And I think, uh, that I wouldn't kill random people to save random people. But if uh, there was somebody actively taking lives, I would, I could end their life to save the people. Yeah, that I understand. But I, I think that falls into the category of like defending yourself and defending the people who are around you. A little no, not, bit, you not, know. I'm saying just saving the lives, random people. I'm just saying, put me in a, like a dream scenario where I walk into a room and there's a crazy guy hacking up these ten people. Or like, there's like they have ten people tied up and they're about to ax them all in the head and I walk in the door and I have a gun in my hand um, and I have to either shoot or let them hack up these people. In that sense, it's easy for me that I would save the innocent lives over the guy about to murder the people. But in the sense of um, just the question that, at, you know, uh, random people push a button, they die, I think I, I go with kind of like what you said and I wouldn't do it. Yeah, it's like I think the situation changes if you're put into a circumstance where there's like some shit going on in your immediate area in your immediate space then reactionary i think yes that that's a possibility but if it's like the push a button type thing you know then you know uh, you know it's like when you bring up the saving of people as well if you look at this through a hinduism buddhist type of lens and you think about the karma of the people who you'd be saving. It's like you don't have, again, the authority to murder somebody, 
but you also don't have the authority to interfere with someone else's karma in that type of a way. Um, if you're talking about outside of the situation, you push a button, kill 10 people, you save 100 people. I think that would apply to, to that. And it, it applies to the death penalty as well. If you're like a judge and you're outside of the situation and you're determining whether or not somebody should live or die, I don't think, I don't believe that that is something that any human has the authority to do ever. But again, if you know, you're in a situation where you're in danger, people around you in your immediate space are in danger, you have a weapon, they have a weapon, that's a different scenario. Yeah, I don't agree with the karma argument because, like, if you're there, because in that situation you were talking about, the situation I said, right, 10 people. I'm talking, when I talk about the karma situation, mm -hmm. I talk about, like, pushing a button. You know what I mean? Like you're external. You're oh, not. So you're not, not in the situation. Okay. You know. All right. Never mind. Because I think those are those are two very different questions, in my opinion. Like if you're this this question seems to be very disconnected from the situation, but if you're connected to the situation, I think the answer is definitely going to be different. It's going to be situational. Right. And uh, yeah, so I I would say uh, in in many situations I would, but. Uh, you know, separated from it, like you said, a judge or something, you know, pushing a button and random people just die and other random people don't, then I wouldn't do it. Yeah, I agree. But, at, you know, at the same time, it's like, that's why, like, the karma thing kind of got me. And, you know, the, it kind of comes back to free will a little bit. Like, you were placed in the position to to do it, you know? So it's like, you, they get the karma that they deserve either way. Exactly. You know? Yeah. So, so yeah, that that's why I think when I, I was realizing that as I was like speaking about the karmic, you know, resolution of the whole situation, that's why I sort of like backpedaled and, you know, pushed myself out of the situation. Right. Cause again, you know, if you're in it, you know, like I, I, I think about if I'm in a bank or something, you know, and I have a gun, if I, say I'm strapped and somebody comes in and they're robbing the bank and they're about to to kill 10 people and I have the opportunity to cap them, I'm doing it. You know right. what I mean? That's because what I it's saying. very situational. Right. And yeah, that, that's kind of the only thing I was getting at. Yeah. But separated from it, I, I also agree with what you said. Mm -hmm. Number 21. What is happiness? Mm, I mean, I think we kind of answered this one already. I think we, we beat the happiness horse pretty dead. Yeah, yeah I think right? we did. So we can Should I just one. read the next one? Yeah. Okay, number 22. How can people believe in truths without evidence? I love this because it brings us back to what is truth? Absolute truth? Relative truth? I, I also want to say real quick that also what is evidence? So That's a good, yeah, they, exactly. Go ahead, that, yeah. That's such a good point too. What is evidence? You know, Do I consider evidence something that I can observe, measure, and write down on a piece of paper that can be verified in peer-reviewed papers by my peers? Or is evidence experiential? And I'll tell you, man, the more powerful evidence in my conscious mind is experiential. I think that measurable, observable, scientific evidence is something that we look at and we, we store in the back of our subconscious mind as, as a fact that helps us to move through the world 
in a way where our physical biological entities are going to survive. So a lot of the subconscious processing that we do when we input information from our surroundings, I think is based off of those observable things. But the more impactful, more important facts of life are based in, in my opinion, experiential evidence. So what was the question exactly again? How can people believe in truths without evidence? Psychedelics, dog. That's how. Any kind of spiritual, transitional type of experience that really means something deep in your soul and deep in your heart, that is an experiential type of evidence that, um, that exists within a higher level of truth, in my opinion, than, um, than what people would typically say as evidence-based truth. Yeah, I, I agree totally. I would say that that's the only way to really believe or know something. People believe in tr in truths without evidence because they had the experience. I think that um, truth precedes proof. You know, not everything that's true is provable. Um, evidence is is also interpreted in different ways and could lead someone to an incorrect conclusion. So evidence is more of like a relative thing that you use to convince somebody of something, whereas the experiential independent verification that you can have that you can't prove to somebody that isn't, you know, something you can physically write down or show to someone else that is more powerful and then can lead you to believe in something that someone will point at you and say, that's nonsense. Where's your evidence? Yeah. And a lot of like the life changes and like the things that are most deeply important to people, a lot of times can't be conveyed, um, within that typical paradigm of like evidence-based facts. Yeah, and we are, it, the evidence, it's always, like, relative, too. Mm -hmm. um, it's definitely relative to time. I mean, the evidence we had uh, 150 years ago, you know, that led people to certain conclusions, it's different from the evidence we have today. And the evidence we have today will be different in 200 years. So, but you can't deny what's happened to you or what you've experienced with your own consciousness. So... It takes an experience to believe in something that doesn't have the proper evidence to support it to another person. And as you said, evidence can be looked at and analyzed in different ways by different parties. And look no further than Fox News versus CNN. Like, they're going to give you very different facts based off of the same situation or same event. And it depends on where you're looking and from what perspective you're analyzing the facts from. The evidence can, can change dramatically, which will dramatically change your conclusion. But the reason why you see ancient knowledge from thousands of years ago that we are resonating with and, and is, is, you know, quite frankly, literally resurrecting, um, these are all things that transcend time unlike the evidence that you said where if you look back to like the Egyptian times or you know the Victorian era or something you know their definition of what was conceivably real in the physical world based off of the evidence they had changes over time yet the experiential evidence of say the evolution of you know the spiritual being you know of of all these ancient traditions hasn't changed and that is why there's so much interest now rising uh, when it comes to ancient traditions, ancient religions, spirituality, because those are things that transcend our normal 
um, parameters that we define evidence as. Yeah, because, I mean, now we value in our culture a very specific type of evidence. We want someone smarter than us to write it down and show us that that's what it is. You know, that's our evidence. We don't have to independently verify anything. We don't have to do it ourselves. We want the evidence. It needs to be peer-reviewed, written down, and something I've never seen by myself in my real life. <laughs> yeah, it's a peer-reviewed culture. That's what yeah. we live in. And... um. Also, even like when you said with Fox News and CNN with the facts that they'll give you different facts, I would even argue that a lot of times they give you the same facts, just different interpretations of them, exact same facts. So that's what I always kind of get bothered when people make the arguments of like, look at the facts, man, the facts this, the facts that. Facts are also like relative. They can be interpreted. They have to be interpreted to exist by a human being. And it's it's far more radical than people realize how differently a fact can be interpreted by people with different motives and different experiences. And, you know, so it's not as simple as evidence and it never will be. So I think, you know, I believe in the things I believe in strongest, I don't have the evidence to prove. And I guess what the, this question was asking, how can people believe in something that's essentially not evidence-based? And I think, again, to go right back to the beginning, it's the Rue experience. 23, is it easier to love or to be loved? I initially want to say that it's easier to love. Because, see, I think that it's easier to love than to be loved. But it's interesting because I'm not exactly sure why right now off the top of my head. Um, I think loving is, is in our nature. And it, it, for me, I think it is my nature to be loving and I love to love. Um, but being love can sometimes maybe be intrusive. Um, sometimes it, it, doesn't, it doesn't feel as uh, good sometimes as being the one that's loving. I think you can't go wrong when you are feeling love for, for everything. Someone, somebody, every single thing. That's maybe not, it's easier in a sense that it is uh, a little more like rewarding, I guess you'd say, and a little more natural for me than just to be loved. I think in my head, thinking about um, being loved brings more, more consequences in a sense. Um, I don't know. What do you think of this? I think that it's easier to love because you can't help but love. You don't have to do anything. It just happens. It just is. You are love and you're always going to love. So in terms of like what you'd have to do in order to be loved or to love, it's easier to love because you don't have to do anything. And I, a little bit along the same lines as you were saying, when you are loved, it can often lead to like obligation and some complicated life circumstances, depending on what the situation is that you're currently in. But then you can also say, if you're loving a person, like say you love someone and they don't love you back, that's like the most painful thing you could ever go through. Or like if you are so in love with someone and then like they break up with you or something, or they want to divorce you, that, that can lead to some of the deepest pain and trauma that a person can experience. 
But I do have to go back to what I said earlier. I think it's just easier to love because it's inherent in our nature. It's what we do. Yeah, if we're talking about, I agree with everything you said right in the beginning. If we're talking about like love, what love really is, like it's totally our nature to love. Um, I kind of took it as more of like the very human uh, conventional definition of love. But it the answer, speaking realistically about, you know, what is what love actually is, is then it's definitely easier to love because no matter what you're doing, it's a version of love, you know? So I think that in that sense, it's definitely easier to love. Like even when you hate somebody, you're still actively loving something. You know, you're never not loving something, no matter what the emotion you feel is. If I'm angry, it's because something happened to something I love and I'm loving. The anger is actually just a love. It's the same emotion. Every every emotion is linked to love. And it is an active loving that is causing a negative or positive response. Um, but as far as, like I said, the conventional uh, reason, I still think that um, for all the... Uh, reasons you just mentioned and I said before it, it's easier to do the loving rather than to receive it sometimes yeah but also in the same vein receiving love feels so good you know like when you're receiving love from another human being it's amazing when you're receiving love from the universe or love from like your transcendent belief system that feels amazing and it doesn't just feel amazing, but it motivates us on a very deep level to pursue the things that we want to pursue. So this is a tough question to answer, but in terms of like a human relationship, is it easier? Right. It's, it says, is it easier? Easier. It's kind of a weird word. Yeah. Easier. Yeah. I think it is easier to love than to be loved. And I, I just kind of thought of it in these terms, which I think makes it, um, even easier to determine. Um, would you rather love everybody or have everybody love you? That is a really interesting question. I think that's a very a better question than this. Yeah. And because there's 225 of these, I expect that question to come up. <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's basically the same question, just worded a little better. Um, I mean, at least that's an easier way to think about it, I think. Because mm -hmm. would you rather is almost the same thing as which is easier, in a sense. It doesn't necessarily have to be, but it's very similar. So in this, in, in, in that question, am I loving, it's like, am I loving no one and they're all loving me? Or am I loving everyone and no one's loving me? Or is it just like a kind of like a mix? It's like if you, you could either absolutely love everyone or have everyone absolutely love you you could still love some people and some people can still love you in in either sense i would i i would rather love everyone because i think that loving everyone is one of the ultimate goals of being a human anyway and if you love everyone you love yourself and you don't need the external approval of the people who are not loving you because if you're loving everyone say i love you and i show you nothing but love and then you show me like the opposite in return, that's not going to be as important to me because I'm not going to put as much of an emphasis on like the way that you're treating me. You'll still love them too. I'll, and yes, and, and you'll still love them too. And what's going to be more important and more impactful to you are the relationships where people reciprocate that love. And again, like you said, you're not going to not love the people who don't like you or who don't love you. So, Right. It's like, as I, I mentioned, I think earlier, it's like the definition of 
becoming more godlike. I mean, just the selflessness and the love. And it's just so happens that loving everyone and everything brings happiness to you. And, you know, it, 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 it doesn't allow external forces to intrude on your state of being. So if you love everybody, you know, I, I love somebody. And as I said, like, they look back at me and they hate me. I still love you. So it's okay. You know, but if I'm just so focused on how they feel about me, it's usually like I have an issue somewhere with me then. But I think being very content and knowing yourself in a deep way allows you to love, you know, everyone else. I totally, totally agree with that. Number 24. Oh, boy. What is time? Time is a relative dimension in which we measure the series of chronologically unfolding events. And it's, it's linear in our definition of it in the way that we measure those events. But time itself, I believe, like most dimensions, whatever a dimension is, can be transcended and is actually all happening now. I don't think that time is linear in the same way that we think it is, that we measure it in our daily lives. I think that time is a dimension that can be transcended and it can be, or, and it is all happening now. As you said, what was that quote? All time and no time happening at the same time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I agree. That's, you worded it pretty good there. I, I mean, I, I, when I read this question, I was like, oh boy. This is, this is a hard one to discuss because um, you can go, you know, the simplest way is it's just like a concept that humans use to, you know, schedule their days and this and that. I mean, but the actual thing is what you said. Um, but time is an aspect of human consciousness. I think that's another good way to look at it. Um, it's not an absolute and fundamental aspect of consciousness or existing, but it is, in a sense, fundamental to human consciousness. Um, as long as you are in the human state, time is something you must experience. Um, it, it takes a, a tweaking of consciousness or a transcendent experience to experience something outside of time or beyond time or with all time. Um, but I think it's time is a, a human construct. Um, I wonder if you could see, we think, let's say this, for instance, I'd look at an earthworm in the ground and I say that that earthworm is existing in time because in my human consciousness, I see that earthworm existing in my time and my, my space time. It's here in time. But in that earthworm's consciousness, is time, does time even exist? So we look at this reality and everything we see in it and assume that those things are experiencing time. But all we can really know is time is a part of human consciousness. Because I think even things that we perceive as being in time may not perceive themselves to be in time, you know, depending on the consciousness of the being or the thing that you're perceiving in time. Um, so, like I said, it is, you know, Clearly, an earthworm doesn't have the concept of time the way we have it. But does it even experience time in its consciousness? You know, maybe it doesn't. But from our, pers per, uh, from our perspective, 
it's something in time. So I, I think it's exactly a, the way you worded it was perfect. It's like a an aspect of human consciousness is the easiest way for me to think about it, though. Um, and it's something that is maybe unique to human consciousness. That's a good point. It could be unique to human consciousness, or it could be unique to a certain level of consciousness that a, a, a biological entity achieves as it evolves. So maybe a worm, an earthworm, doesn't experience time, but a dog sort of does. They experience it in a different way than we do because of the lifespan. You know, I think also the duration of a being's life has a um, a very strong influence on how it experiences time and sort of what time is to it. Like, if I leave my dog for a day, it might feel like I'm leaving him for a week to him. So time is very relative in that sense. That's a good point. We didn't bring up the relativity of it. No, go ahead. But if you just look at any any type of animal or any type of being that experiences anything, you'd have to assume that it, it experiences time in a different way than we do. And maybe there's a different way, an even more accurate or even more influential way to experience time than even we do. And as our consciousness evolves and as we evolve as biological entities, we might have the tools to experience time in a different way. And I've always thought to myself that like maybe memory is the the first little tiny inklings that the biological human or any animal has that is that will eventually um grow into and evolve into time travel through the mind because the only time I've ever been able to transcend or experience timelessness is via brain chemistry using psychedelics or meditation or something like that. I mean, so if time travel is real, why would time travel be physical? If time travel is real, then you would think that there'd be people just coming back in time constantly. You just see time machines everywhere throughout your entire environment. You just see them all over the place. But maybe time travel exists within the mind, within some sort of content of consciousness. So I always had that weird thought that maybe memory is like just the beginning of, our, of us being able to travel back in time with our minds. And that would sort of support the fact that time is, a not, is not linear and is always a dimension that's happening now here. That's it. Yeah, totally. And like you said, it's... The, it, time travel has to exist in the mind because nothing doesn't exist in the mind, you know? There's nothing existing outside of your mind right now. Everything exists within it. And, you know, you can look at it even in the sense that just time simply just doesn't exist aside from... That's why I, I was kind of saying it could be just totally unique to human consciousness. It could be time as a fabrication of this state of consciousness and even the dog, or let's say like my cat, how I mentioned before, he sits there and he looks like he's in a Zen state. You know, his eyes are closed, his ears are back. He's just calm. So maybe these animals don't experience time at all, that they are in the, the now always. So they are living in a now state. And we just perceive these things as being in time 
through our conception of this reality and our state of consciousness, when maybe certain beings, I would argue that definitely some beings would live in a state where time doesn't even exist. Like, for instance, you know, an ant, they don't, they probably live, I mean, I could never know their, what their consciousness is actually like. I don't know. But I can guarantee that the dimension of time isn't within their, you know, their consciousness. They're in a, an entirely different state of consciousness. And it makes me think, you know, we talk about time being relative. If these states of consciousness of other beings might not interpret a thing as time, then what makes us believe that time is actually real and not just a fabrication of a specific state of consciousness? So then what do you think the purpose of us being able to identify and measure time is? Do you think it's like it's a matter of discovering the relative nature of what's around us in terms of like mathematics and how things work in like the cosmos? Do you think that's the benefit? Because it seems like it'd be more beneficial to our spiritual selves to not live in a, in a mode of consciousness where we're measuring time constantly. You'd think that your cat or that ant is in a more Zen state than we are. So what's the purpose then of being able to measure and understand time in the way that we do? I mean, the purpose, I, that's, a, that's a good question. Is there a purpose rather than just for the fun of it? That's what I, I probably kind of lean towards is just that we are having the human experience and this, there might not have to be a reason rather just for the sake of it. You know, um, it just so happens that this thing we call time is an aspect of this state and we will, we will experience many other states where there might be a whole nother thing that exists that we can't comprehend now. You know, we think of time, the cat doesn't comprehend time. Then, you know, what else is there that we can't comprehend in this state? There might be a whole nother, you know, dimension or whatever you want to call it that exists only in a specific state of consciousness. So I'd say time isn't absolute, that's for sure. It's not an absolute thing. It's, it's relative. And the only thing I can know for sure is that it is unique to human consciousness. I have a, a different relationship with time now since, you know, using psychedelics. And, you know, you can use a, a really high dose and get into a really deep state of consciousness that, you know, you see time not even as really existing, that there is no time. All there is is all time, you know, that type of thing I was talking about earlier. But even if you are at a dose that isn't that high and getting you that far, you can still, you will still experience time in an entirely different way. Like even if you take, you know, a moderate dose and, you know, five minutes could feel like five hours. Like time, it just takes a tweak of the consciousness and then suddenly time is a malleable thing. It just doesn't work stagnantly. So like I've had experiences with psychedelics where, um, I've thought I, it, like two hours had passed at the very least. And it was literally a minute. It's like not comprehensible in this state because, uh, time is so stagnant and rigid here, but there's a tweak of the consciousness and it just either goes out the window or it turns into something completely different. You know, you know what though? I would say it's comprehensible in this experience here because haven't you ever had a moment in time where like 
oh my God, this is like the longest five minutes I've ever experienced. You know, it's like, you know, five of four o'clock or something, you're about to get off work and it just feels like it takes forever. But then you're doing a podcast like we're doing right now. And I look down and I see we're at an hour and a half and I'm like, wow, it feels like 20 minutes. You know, you hear this all the time on every single Joe Rogan podcast. Mm -hmm. The guest is like, oh, it's already been three and a half hours. And he's like, yeah. And it, it feels like time is experiential. It depends on what you're doing, how you're feeling, and time will feel like it's going really, really fast or really, really slow. So what's more important, the measurement of time? The measurement of time is more important to what we have to do daily in our lives, but what's more important to what we really feel in our consciousness? Is it how long time feels like? You know, it, it, these are all really strange questions of, of how, how you go about defining what time is. Yeah, because like here, like uh, an hour and a half of us talking, you know, seems like a breeze. But like try putting your hand on a stove for an hour and a half. It's going to be the longest amount of time you've ever experienced. You know? Yes, yes, it it's is. going to feel longer than your whole life, basically. Um, yeah, time, it, it fascinates me, really. But um, it, at least now I have uh, an experience. I've had experiences that shown me really extreme examples of the relativity of time and then even the rel like the relativity but not only the relativity of time but the non-existence of time you know yeah exactly another paradox it exists but it also doesn't because a lot of times it doesn't exist in the same way that we want it to and i think we we describe things like that in those terms quite often on this pod and you said a lot of times uh, it doesn't happen. <laughs> it's crazy. All of time is happening. None of time is happening. <laughs> all the time. All right. You want to wrap it up? We're yeah, good? yeah, I think so. We, we're, we're probably not going to continue this on our, on our next episode, our following one, because we don't want to overload you guys with a bunch of just question episodes. I really do love doing these, though. Yeah, me too. Um, and we are going to continue this one because this has been a, a pretty fruitful one. Um, yeah, who knows what next time's going to be about, but Deems report. Deems report might be might be it. 